Uh, we're going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians, uh, some portions from chapters 2 and 3. If you want to turn there, it'll also be on the screen. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to begin in chapter 2 and start in verse 5. It says, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. He said, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Skip down to verse 17 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And down to chapter 3, verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnest, earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's word and so we say thanks be to God. And so it's a new year and with that comes a new annual focus or priority for our church. If you've joined North Wake in the past year or so and you're wondering what this annual priority thing is or you are a member here and you just forgot that we do this, let me remind you, an annual priority is a way for our church to focus on a particular truth from Scripture and pray that it would increasingly mark our lives in the coming year. We don't necessarily preach explicitly or harp on that theme every single week, but we select books of the Bible and other teachings along the way that help keep the annual priority running in the background on a slow drip throughout the year. So last year, if you remember, we challenged one another to re-engage after a year plus that contained a lot of social and spiritual disengagement, if you remember. So we challenged each other to re-engage with God through spiritual practices, regular spiritual rhythms, with one another in the church and with our unbelieving friends and neighbors. And to that end, we studied some of the Psalms, we studied the book of Daniel, and we studied the book of Philippians. And as we continue to process everything that's happened in our country, in our world, in our community through 2020 and 2021, it's worth reflecting on some of the changes that our lives and priorities 
and even our souls have undergone in the past year or so. People all over the country have begun to rethink and reprioritize their lives. Perhaps some of you made some really big changes this year in your work or in your family or where you live or even in church or the, all the new shows that you chose to watch this year. And some of these changes have probably been for the better. Uh, and maybe some of us realized that we were living at way too fast of a pace and we needed to slow down or we haven't kept in touch with our family or, or whatever. But as our society and as all of us begin to pick the pace back up, decisions will have to be made about what gets prioritized and what gets left out. And this for many of us is kind of a complicated decision, especially when it comes to church. Our gatherings feel more complicated these days. Our interactions feel a lot more complicated. We liked each other a whole lot more before social media existed and we really knew what each other thought about everything under the sun. And so we're all left wondering sometimes, uh, do I really know these people like I thought I did? Do I still belong here? Do I still want to belong here? Why do I sometimes feel more camaraderie with my unbelieving friends from work than I do with members of my own church? Would anyone miss me if I was gone? Am I overcommitted to this place? Am I undercommitted? Am I committed to the right things? I feel burnt out and fatigued by life right now. Is church really worth the effort? Showing up, socially engaging, serving, being known, sacrificing time. Can't I just tune in online? Do I really need to put on pants and put on a smile? Pastor Sam Alberry, and this is a pastor writing this, mind you, he vulnerably writes, says, being honest, on some Sundays, the park looked like a better option. I was working for a church in Oxford, and my walk to the morning service every Sunday took me through a park. It was lovely. There was something for everyone. A swimming pool, tennis courts, a boating pond, a lake full of ducks, a playground, plenty of space for ball games, and plenty of benches for watching everyone doing their something. On a sunny Sunday morning, the place was full. Everyone doing their thing and having a great time. And there I was, walking through it all, Bible tucked under my arm on my way to church. And the question was, if I wasn't a pastor, would I stop? If my paycheck didn't kind of depend on me being at church, would I stay in the park? The park looked like a lot less effort than the church. It didn't look as if anyone in the park was going to put me on a rotation. No one was going to ask me to pick up the tennis balls every other Sunday or turn up early to get the ducks out. The park looked like a lot of fun. You could choose what you wanted to do, how often you went, and how long you stayed. Feel like tennis? Come and play. Feel more like sitting on your own reading a book? Great. And if you're not here next week, fine. You can make friends or not, as you wish. The park also looked a lot more normal. Church increasingly isn't. I'm sure I am not the only Christian and not the only pastor to have had these feelings. He's probably right. Uh, not that your pastors, you know, of course, have ever felt this way. But, you know, for real, for you, like where does church sit in your thinking, in your affections, and in your priorities these days? Why does it matter so much? You know, why bother? So this year, this is what we're going to be thinking about. Our priority is going to be to strengthen our love and commitment to the local church as an expression of our love for Christ. In short, to treasure the church. 
And so to that end, we're going to study books like Titus and Colossians and Hosea and likely another book, TBD, along with a handful of passages that give us the primary images or metaphors that teach us something about the true nature of the church. Um, Images like the family of God or the bride of Christ or the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in the rest of our time today, I want to focus on one of those church images or metaphors that the New Testament gives us to help us see what the church really is, the nature of the church itself, not just the things that we do, like gathering to sing or hearing teaching from the Bible or hiring staff members or running programs or setting up chairs or our facilities or finances or volunteering. That's what a church needs, but not what a church is, to commandeer a phrase from the great sage philosopher pirate Jack Sparrow. And no, I'm not going to do a Jack Sparrow voice, much to the sh- uh, chagrin of some of my students. Yes, uh, you know where I'm looking. Uh, he says, you know, a ship is not just a keel and a hull and a deck and sails. That's what a ship needs, but what a ship is, to Jack Sparrow, is freedom. So what is the church beneath all the things that we do, Really? So I want to turn our attention to one of those images of the church that's been most deeply meaningful for me personally as I think about the church and as I think about our church. And that's the image of church as family. Perhaps family is still on the forefront of all of our minds after the holidays, you know, for better or for worse, usually a mixture of both. But our families, no matter how independent you might be from them, they play perhaps the most formative role in who you are and how you live. Our greatest joys and our most painful wounds are usually tied to our families. Families shape us in permanent and complex ways, and even the most respectable families have secrets, sins, and brokenness that have massive fallout for each of us. We all leave our families of origin with a limp. Family's deeply important to all of us, so why would the Bible use family as a key metaphor to describe the church. And this is where we circle back around to that passage in 1 Thessalonians. We'll get back to it more in a moment, but you heard Paul use all kinds of familial references when talking about his interactions with and his affections for the church. He called them his brothers. He said, we were like a nursing mother when we were with you. We challenged and encouraged you like a father with his own children. Over and over through this book and multiple books in the New Testament, uh, you'll see that term that Christians referred to one another as brothers, or you could also translate it brothers and sisters. It refers to siblings in a family. Paul, Peter, John, they all use familial language to describe their relationships with each other. They don't call the people in their church their disciples or their mentees. They call them their sons, their daughters, their brothers, and their sisters. Just to give you a few examples from other books before we land back in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy. And look what he calls Timothy. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And then Philippians 2 from the book that we studied last year. But you know Timothy's proven worth, 
how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. A little later in Philippians 4.1, he's writing to the Philippians. He says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Titus chapter 1, which we'll see later this year, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. And then Paul gives these instructions uh, for how the Christian community is to relate to one another in 1 Timothy 5. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Uh, Dr. John Hammett, who teaches here at Southeastern, he points out that members of a church are called brothers or sisters about 56 times in the New Testament. And that makes the image of family the most widely used image for the New Testament church. Now, don't miss the significance of this. We use the term fairly loosely these days. Hey, bro, you know, how you doing, brother? Uh, but for the first Christians to use the term brother or sister, for them it was not common parlance. It was a radical term that denoted their incredible loyalty and intrinsic bond to one another. There's a guy named Joseph Hellerman who wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family. And he points out that in the ancient Mediterranean world where all these churches were getting started, the primary same generation relational bond was not marriage. Marriage was used primarily in the ancient world as a way to strengthen alliances and to produce offspring, but sadly, not often for friendship. Your best friends, your closest companions, even when you were an adult, after getting married, if you had lived in this time, would have been your brothers and your sisters still. So when the New Testament church started calling one another brother and sister, it meant way, way more to them than it means to us. We don't feel the weight of the term when we use it. Now, I grew up, I would consider, really close with all of my siblings. I come from a big family with six kids. I'm the oldest boy. I have an older sister. Here's one of those obligatory on the beach, white shirt, jeans, pictures. And uh, we were all raised in a believing home by great parents. And uh, as a kid, most of the houses that we lived in, we did as much construction work on them together ourselves as we possibly could. So there's us, yeah, eating popsicles, sitting by scaffolding that I'm sure we climbed all over. And especially this one house uh, was out on a piece of land that my great-grandfather owned. We rebuilt an old house out there that was, or rebuilt an old church, rather, and turned it into a house that was left on the property. So most of our afternoons, evenings, mornings, <laughs> Uh, weekends were spent working on this house out at the farm. And some of my best and worst memories are of me at 11 and 12 years old up at 1 a.m. running a tile saw with my dad and then going to bed with a white line just striped up my body from the chalky wet spray of the tile saw. So pretty much all my childhood, our free time was spent working, fishing, uh, riding horses, wrangling alligators, and doing all of it with my sisters, that's my youngest sister there, and that's what happened to my hair, she kept it, and uh, my brothers. So, why the nostalgic tour of my childhood other than happy holidays, right? Um, well, here's, here's the point. I have a wonderful bond with my brothers and sisters, and I would do almost anything for them. Now, I know not everyone's relationships with their siblings is like this, 
But for many of us, if your brother or sister needed something, even if you're not super tight with them, you would be on a plane in a split second for them. If they came into town, you would rearrange your schedule to see them. If they were lonely or needed a place to stay, they would have a place in your home. Your brothers and sisters have priority in your life. So even, even if your relationship with your siblings is not that great, or even if you're an only child, you still need to realize what Hellerman is saying, that it doesn't matter. Sibling relationships in the ancient world were even stronger and more intimate than the strongest sibling relationships that you know of today. So when Paul and the early church called each other brother and sister, it was a term loaded with affection and loyalty. And it's how Christians are called to see one another. It's the category we're meant to use when we think about each other. Regardless of your biological family status, single or married, young or old, black or white, do you think about the church like this, like family? Now, you might be thinking, well, that's taking it a little too far, right? This is all just a metaphor now, isn't it? Well, let's revisit the Thessalonians passage that we read at the beginning. Let me just point out a few things. Notice the affection that Paul has for this church, and then notice his actions that spring from those affections. And then third, notice the origin or where he gets the power to do that, the source of his, his affections. So notice his affections for this church. Notice the actions that spring from them. And then look at the source. See where this comes from. What's the origin of those affections? So Paul says that when he and others came to minister at this church, verse seven, they didn't try to flatter or strong arm them into the faith, but rather he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is a beautiful, tender, albeit a little strange, image for Paul to use of how he cared for and nurtured the church, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. He goes on to say in verse eight that so, being affectionately desirous of you, which is somewhat of a Victorian rendering there by the ESV, other translations say, we loved you so much. We loved you so much that we were ready to share with you two things. These are critical. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is brotherly love in the church, giving the gospel to each other, sharing our very own lives with one another. This is what I have always hoped and prayed that our students would remember from their time in our student ministry, that there were people who loved them enough to give them the gospel and who loved them enough to give them their own lives with its success, successes and failures and everything in between. So Paul spells this out further. He shows some of the actions that flow from those affections. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, like a father with his own children, we worked hard for you. We exhorted, encouraged, and challenged each one of you. We knew you personally 
We got to know you and encourage you on an individual level, like parents have to do with their own, their own kids. It's not just this group of kids that you have, they're individual personalities. You see his heart for these people, how he treasures them. Look at verse 17. He says, but since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you again face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. He longed to be with them in person, to see them face to face. He missed them. This is a mark of a healthy family. You miss being around each other when you're not together. Now, obviously, there have been times in the last couple of years when we have not been able to meet together in person. Did you miss each other? Do you miss the church when you're away from them? Or is it like a relief when you don't have to be at service or small group? Paul's words are so strong here. They challenge our surface level commitment to one another. Look at verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. That is strong. Like it almost sounds heretical, right? You, the church, you are our glory and our joy. In the great 90s movie, Hook, uh, Peter Pan, who's played by Robin Williams, is a grown-up who moved away from Neverland and got married and had kids and becomes a grumpy, overworked lawyer. But of course, you know, Captain Hook, he hunts him down in the real world and kidnaps uh, Peter Pan's children, Jack and Maggie. And Hook preys on Peter Pan's struggles as a father to convince his kids that Peter doesn't really love them, can't take care of them, and so Jack, his son, turns on him. So now old man Pan has to learn how to fly, how to fight, and how to crow all over again to get his kids back. And to do that, of course, he needs pixie dust and happy thoughts, which he really has a hard time with now as a grumpy lawyer. But when he finally confronts Hook, uh, Peter's kids see him flying, fighting, crowing, and they hardly recognize him. And as Peter fights the pirates, he flies up to his son Jack and tells him, I finally found my happy thoughts. You want to know what it is? It was you, is what he tells his son. For Paul, the people of this church, they are his happy thoughts. They make his heart soar. I mean, listen to him. He says, what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory. You are our joy. This is how he feels for the church. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 8, For now if we live, for now, sorry, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. As any parent knows with their children, their well-being and their joy is tied up with your well-being and your joy. For Paul, his heart and life is unbreakably tethered to the people of the church like they are his own family, because they are. Do you realize this? That the biological families you have now are but shadows. They are pointers 
to the family of God that will last forever. So I may need to correct myself. The church isn't like a family. It is the family to which all other families ultimately point. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12. He started all this. <laughs> and uh, verse 46, it says, While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, if God has made us his children, really, then we really are brothers and sisters. And this family will last far beyond the biological families that you have now. One of our North Wake members has a sister who's adopted. And she went to visit her over the holidays. Sometimes she gets asked if she's going to see her adopted sister. But she says, I don't see it that way at all. I'm just going to see my sister, period. If God's adoption of you as his child is the real deal, and he is your true father, then look around. This is not like your family. This is your family. And as such, we have way more in common with each other than we have differences. As such, we must bear with each other in a way that only families are willing to do for each other. <laughs> and admittedly, that's a hard thing to do only on Sunday mornings in our large gatherings. We have kind of a big family, and it's hard to put affection into action with a couple hundred people, although I guess there are some ways that you can do that. But it's critical that you think of the church not in just like an abstract, like an I love my church bumper sticker for a lot of people maybe just means my church has great programs and decent preaching. But it means that you have meaningful fellowship with real people. There's individuals and names and faces that come into your mind when you think about the church. Now, some of you, and on some days myself, you think, ah, but what if I'm just not there? Like if I'm honest, I don't have that type of deeply rooted affection for the people of the church. Maybe for some of you, the church feels more like the Simpsons than the Waltons, if anyone still knows who they are. And for all of us, myself included, we still have a long way to go in learning to treasure and love one another. So how do we get there? What's the origin or the source for this kind of familial affection? Well, the answer is found in Paul's prayer at the end of that passage. Verse 11, Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now there's a lot here. For sake of time, let me just point out a couple of things. First, when looking for this type of affection for the church, Paul prays for it. He prays for an increase and an abounding in love. What we are after in this church is a supernatural affection that only God can work within us. So we have to start. We have to start by praying and asking for it. But also notice how Paul prays. 
He strategically refers to God here. He prays to God as our God and Father himself. This phrase, our God and Father himself, it's an emphatic phrase, putting double emphasis on the subject. Like when the Grinch at the end of the story, he himself carved the roast beast. (laughs) Right? It's like, whoa, really? The Grinch did that? He himself, our Father, he himself is the one who will give us this love for each other. So if it was radical in Paul's day to call church members your brother or your sister, it was just as radical to call God your father. Which, of course, is a radical statement to say that the God and creator of the universe you know intimately as your father. But for all who have received Christ the Son, this is our birthright. So if you need to grow in your love for the brethren, then you need to grow in your grasp of the love of the Father. Affection for the church flows from grasping your adoption into it. Uh, J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, the longest chapter in that book is about adoption into God's family. And in that chapter, he argues that adoption is our highest privilege as Christians, but it has long been overlooked by Protestants as a major theme of our faith. It's chapter 19, if you own that book. If you don't own it, you should get it. And it's a rich reflection, that chapter is called Sons of God. If you wanna think more about what it means, if you need to grow in what it means to be adopted as God's child. But you know, as Protestants, we celebrate most loudly the doctrine of justification by faith. That God forgives our sins by his grace and declares us innocent in his sight, not because of our good works, but because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And that is a wonderful doctrine to celebrate. We should. It's true. It's amazing. And all the other blessings of salvation flow from it. But J.I. Packer argues that justification is not the end game or even the highest blessing of being a Christian for God only to forgive us like a judge. Because you see, we aren't just forgiven and then turned loose, but we are forgiven and brought home into a family, to a father, J.I. Packer says this is essential for living as a Christian. To quote him, he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And while I'm dispensing free theology quotes, let me give you one more from Professor Michael Reeves. He says, it's not that this God does being father as a day job only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That's who he is. You see, God forgives you so that he might adopt you love you, and be to you a perfect father of which all other fathers, even the best ones, are but a dim shadow. John writes in his first letter, see, don't you see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God? Or as the old King James put it, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us. 
that we should be called sons of God. What kind of love is this? That we, the enemies of God, should be adopted into his very family, his home, his heart. And on that basis, the basis of our common adoption, you do belong here. And we do belong together. Despite all of our differences and the challenges of life, we who belong to Jesus really are brothers and sisters with one Father. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we remember our adoption today into God's family. And we remember that it was very costly for us to be adopted. Some of you know adoption today, I mean like physical adoption is a really expensive undertaking to invite a child into your home, to have them come and live with you and be part of your family. But God paid the ultimate price for our adoption when he gave his only beloved son so that he would bring many sons and daughters into his home, to this table, into his heart. And so if you're a Christian here today walking in fellowship with God, then you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper here at North Wake. This is a meal that we share together as God's children. It's a symbol of our fellowship with God through Christ and a symbol of our fellowship with one another. So take this moment today to receive and remember once again the sacrifice of Christ for you. And as you do that, also enjoy this moment together as a family. Look around and give thanks that God saw fit to adopt you into this family with many brothers and sisters. And if perhaps, you know, the troubles of the past, month, uh, past months have placed a rift between you and a brother or sister, maybe you could take time to pray about how to go about clearing that up. Maybe you could pray with them today as an act of worship to God. So as we do this, if you'll um, use, as, as usual, the center, aisles to, the center aisle to come forward and the, the wall aisles to come forward, and then these other two middle aisles to return to your seats, and then we'll all take the Lord's Supper together as a family after you've been, been served here. And if you're here today or listening and you're, you're not a Christian, um, thanks for being here, first of all. I, I hope what you've heard helps you understand our faith and our God a little better, a little better. And we would want you to know that you too can have a place at the Father's table in his house if you will surrender to his embrace and accept his invitation to you. Let's pray. So, Father, in your word today, we see your heart. Your heart to adopt us and to make us your family. So even now, this morning, as we reflect on what that cost you, we once again give you thanks. Help us to see the church rightly for what it is, your family, our family. And in keeping with that, to treasure one another, to bear with one another, to sacrifice for one another as we would our own because you have made us your own. We pray all this through the matchless name of Christ. Amen.